Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Act for a Post-Consumer World. Now, I know I said that we were going to do this podcast every other week, but we got contacted by someone we both really admire, Mark Lakeman. Someone you might know from the neighborhood transformations he's been involved with in Portland, Oregon. Mark Lakeman is the co-founder of the nonprofit placemaking organization, The City Repair Project, and principal of the community architecture and planning firm, Communitecture. Mark Lakeman is also an urban placemaker, permaculture designer, and community design facilitator. He's helped spread revolutionary ideas to cities around the world. He's coming to Los Angeles for a series of events starting Tuesday, March 22nd of 2016. We'll have more information at the end of the show about these events. And now, our conversation with Mark Lakeman. So, welcome, Mark, to the Root Simple Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you. Yes, welcome, Mark. Wanted to have you on for a long time, actually. So, I thought we'd begin, actually, with uh, how you began. Uh, now, you have a background in uh, corporate architecture. That's your degree, and I think your father was an architect, too. How did you get from that point in your career to what you're doing now? It seems like quite a, 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 a divide between the, those two worlds. Yeah, it's, uh, but at the same time, Having been in um, the belly of the beast, so to speak, has certainly been helpful to me in terms of knowing how to uh, kind of address different scales, uh, work with all kinds of different partners, and also kind of understand that, you know, as I'm trying to change things, I really need to fundamentally understand what I'm trying to change. So that corporate career was very helpful, and it served as a point of departure in so many ways. Like, in order to have the the drive um, and the interest to go out and sort of gather information from indigenous communities, as I did over many years, um, I first had to be in corporate culture. And on a certain day, there was a huge toxic waste cover-up in the firm where I was working, the, the largest and most powerful architecture company in the in the state of Oregon. And uh, the cover-up was so flippant and brazen. Um, and out in the open, um, as if no one would care, that it really um, motivated me to actually quit that very day and go traveling to... I mean, at first, I just I just had to go away and look at how the rest of the world lived. And I was highly motivated, though, to, to kind of observe how people were creating um, their own environments and how, in those cases, communities wouldn't betray the ecology of their place or the future of their community through such behaviors. So um, I found myself going around from community to community for over a course of seven years, basically asking one culture after another if they had any idea what was wrong with me and what was wrong with my my country and my, my culture. And Where did you go? So well, my favorite place was Central America several times to immersions in a Mayan community, but mm. before and after then, I was visiting North American communities from kind of Navajo and Apache to um, more locally to Portland, Warm Springs Indians, but Muslim cultures in North Africa, and certainly mm. all sorts of different um, Western European countries as well. 
And what were the differences that you found between those cultures and our own? Well, a more place-based community is measurably different, especially if they've inhabited the place over time. So they will have, like, you know, whether you're visiting uh, a larger town or city with more continuity over time or smaller villages especially, where the the kind of layers of participation over over time are more evident, you see that they are just so fundamentally different than the lives we live in this country. I mean, to you have to kind of talk about both of these things at the same time to understand the difference. So, whereas you might go visit a village where you might have the same population as an American neighborhood of about fifteen to 25,000 people, in the village in another country you might have the same population, but there could be dozens and dozens of community gathering places so in Italy, that would be the piazza, where you might have as many as 40 piazzas in a small village with about 15,000 people. And then you can contrast that with an American neighborhood that won't even have one. Mm-hmm. Americans Americans just take for granted that people don't talk to each other. Oh, it's just normal to not care about each other. But, you know, when you basically what's happened to us is, you know, when you live in a development mechanism like a neighborhood, where the entire neighborhood is created as a product, that meets the developer's bottom line. You have, you know, you can ask yourself, well, would that really be sustainable if the developer has no, no knowledge whatsoever of what a, a full spectrum community program has to be like? It has to have places for recreation and relief. It has to have places for decision making and, and gathering. It, and, and you know, at best, it would have things like agricultural landscapes and facilities for, for working. But in the case of the American neighborhood. All across the country, neighborhood neighborhood tracts are really their housing zones by design. You have to leave the housing zone to go to the work zone in order to make the money to pay for the home zone. And mm-hmm. that disintegration breaks down our community all across the country with consistent outcomes that are um, largely negative. But it seems, though, that we do have some gathering places, but they're privatized, right? I mean, people, at least in our neighborhood, if people are gathering, it's in a coffee place. Maybe, you know, they're private around here, but, I mean, other places it would be Starbucks, whereas the parks are often underutilized or empty. Well, we have very few parks in Los Angeles anyway. Right. So, um, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. You, well, these things reemerge. I mean, it's almost as if it's an immunoresponse. You know, if, if there is no way for people to gather because we're biologically hardwired to need to, uh, because we're, you know, as social creatures, we want to be part of a larger organism of community. I mean, we just, you know, if, if you have ears, it's because you're supposed to be listening to someone else speak. Uh, there's so many different ways you can kind of talk about it. But, you know, the emergence of different coffee houses and, and different sorts of environments, even if you have to pay for a place to sit, as you have to in those places, um, They'll work in some sort of de facto way as you start to come to grips with the issue. And I think coffee houses are very, very important, as, as was the tea house movement in the end of the 19th century mm. in Western Europe. So gathering's a big deal. And, and in condo communities, gated communities, you certainly find a full spectrum of all kinds of different spaces that people use for, for, for different kinds of needs. Um, recreational or decision-making. In that case, you know, the condominium developer is saying to people who have the money, look at all that you can get behind these gates. But for working-class neighborhoods that really form the majority of Americans, um, they live in 
places that really don't don't offer those amenities. So, I mean, hence the work that we're doing to basically transform, even if you have to transform streets, to transform streets into functional um, public commons again. What did when you came back from your travels and were attempting to address these problems? What were your first attempts like? What what did they look like? Good question. Well, um, this awareness really did start to grow fairly early on after my return, and partly it was because I was coached, um, especially in this last Mayan community that I visited. They're known as the Lock and Don Maya, and quite famous for having invaded Spanish, evaded Spanish colonialism. <laughs> and basically, we're, we're in hiding until about 80 years ago. Very few people knew that they existed. So I was there, kind of asking these questions about how they lived and um, in their intergenerational communities. Uh, they said to me, well, you know, if you really want to do something about the, the state of the world, you have to understand the context you're in it kind of the story that your own family has been living. And they said, just like our community that was invaded and, and overwhelmed with new kinds of settlement patterns that are grid-based, imposed over our indigenous pattern. I'm having to paraphrase because they were speaking Spanish. But just like those communities, these people explained to me, the same thing was done to your own, your own community so long ago you don't even know your own story. And of course... In my case, they would be talking about the Romans invading the lands of the, of the, of the Celts um, and imposing new systems and structures and patterns over, over those conquered lands. So they were saying, this is a common cause here. Don't just interview us as if we're the victims here. They said, even more fundamentally, you, you Western Europeans are even more suffering even more. And I said, how in the world can you say that after all that we've done to you? And they said, you know what the difference is? At least we know our own, our own story. It's happened recently enough that we we still have a sense of what's happened to us. But he said, my friend, you you have no idea what has been done to your people. So he said, when you get home, go to the middle of an intersection, the one closest to where you live, and stand and look in all directions to see that the lines are straight and flat, and then walk a little ways and see that another intersection is exactly the same. And then walk to, go to another town and see that it's exactly the same. And you know, I'd studied this in planning and architecture school that in 1785, the Continental Congress really did blueprint Roman colonialism as a basis for westward expansion, but I had never connected it to the fact that my own neighborhood was a grid and was missing gathering places, which is really part of the National Land Ordinance to not, I mean, to basically proscribe everything about our reality, even our economic structure and political structure, you know, the, the six-mile townships and such as people were claiming land going westward, but I never had understood that it made no provision for public squares. Mm-hmm. Even though, like in Portland, we only, we only retroactively put in our first public square 30 years ago, I hadn't made the connection that that retroactive installation was actually redressing a history of the absence of place in Portland and in so many other cities. So they said, stand in an intersection and look in all directions and understand that this thing is an imposed infrastructure everywhere. Um, and try to understand when this happened in your own family history. So that was a revelation, you know, to kind of understand that uh, settlement patterns, colonialism, actually accounts for the absence of place typically in American communities and has contributed tremendously to things like the breakdown of families, um, 
violence in communities characterized by isolation, all sorts of different aberrant public health statistics that are so weird in our country compared to other nations. So oh. the work that we've been doing, go ahead. Go oh, ahead. Good. oh, I was going to just say, ask, was this a conscious move by the planners to remove public gathering spaces so that there wouldn't be a chance to gather and, uh, cause, and trouble. cause trouble, protest, <laughs> uh, you know, rabble-rousing, that kind of stuff? Or was it an efficiency thing? Like, oh, those things, they didn't see those things as important and the land could be, you know, more profitably divided into commercial space or something like that? Well, I would say that people, everyone gives a kind of a different answer depending on how familiar they are with the issues. Like, for instance, I, I consider myself a new urbanist, and I really admire the new urbanist movement in, in our country for its goals to create walkable, talkable communities where services are with, within a walking distance. So you'll get outside and move around a little bit and become more healthy and maybe live in a more sociable environment because everybody else is encouraged to be outside. That's all, that's all good, and their critique of the grid is, um, I think, actually, what I would say is half-baked because what they want to do is re-embrace an infrastructure that everybody else was rejecting when they created the suburbs. But the whole conversation hasn't been informed by the fact that whether you're talking about the suburbs or the grid, that's both of them are infrastructures that serve development interests, and they're never an expression of community dynamism or human behavior. It's, it's a very different thing than the places that we love to save our money and go visit across the oceans. That are, mm. Those places are called geomorphic geomorphic villages. But anyway, back to your question. A lot of people would say that the grid is laid out in order to co create comparables, to create comparable circumstances so that the land is measurably similar so that we can sort of set prices. Um, but, I mean, right there, they're saying something that they should be looking a little bit more closely at. Like, why would you ever create a society where you fundamentally treat the home or the hearth as a commodity? I mean, that's so intense in our country, and it's a function of colonialism. But to go even deeper into your question, the grid comes from not Thomas Jefferson. The Continental Congress, that's what, what we're taught in high school, but you certainly don't learn that in architecture and planning or social studies in any university. You learn that the, the story is much, much older and that the grid was invented as a way of containing conquered people. And then it was, you know, its function of isolation just comes with its design but it's blueprinted over and over through history. It's invented by the Assyrian-Babylonian culture. It gets reinterpreted and copied endlessly within Egypt, Greece, and then finally Rome, where they really went to town and built something like 11,000 colonial cities. And then after the rejection of the grid, 800 years later, it comes to the Western Hemisphere, and then the Spanish are using it everywhere to contain and, and control conquered land. And at that point, the United States blueprints what the Spanish were doing. But you know what's cool about what the Spanish were doing, as horrible as it was? They always mandated a plaza or a zocalo for every town and village, which... Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that, because I, when I think of, like, Latin American cities, Mexican cities, I think, you know, well, at least they get to walk around. At least they always have a square, <laughs> you know. So they kept that. I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. No, 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 that's no interruption at all. It's, it's great to talk about it. Actually, it's sort of boring and at the same time important to talk about. Well, when it comes to the United States and the National Land Ordinance, it's the first time in the history of the planet Earth that somebody adopts the Roman grid, omitting public gathering places from the plan. So, okay, we'll create these settlements, but there won't be any provision for public space. 
So things like parks, which are wonderful, they usually in every city end up being something where a landowner bequeaths um, some land in their name, in their memory, so that it goes into the public infrastructure. But it doesn't really begin as a commons that people have identified. Mm. And I love parks, but let's let's just be clear. Parks and public squares are the two archetypes of, of urban open space. And even though Portland, Oregon has a whole lot of parks, and a lot of cities have, of course, they have parks, our great deficiency isn't parks, it's public squares. And they're so missing, we almost don't know why they would even be important. You have to travel to another country to see how a plaza would work, mm-hmm. you know, and then come back to the USA to tell stories like, yeah, during our vacation, we went to this place and everyone was out talking and all the generations were there and it was within easy walking distance and they seemed to be everywhere. What a great place. And then you hear people saying, oh, Americans, they don't really like other people. They're kind of a weird sort of group. They, um, they seem to just talk about prices or talk about themselves. <laughs> they talk about their cars a lot. You know? <laughs> yeah. Traffic. What we're hearing in their criticism of us is what they're seeing our be- in our behavior that comes out of our isolation. I mean, you hear it all the time, like in a cafe. People will talk, talk, talk about themselves. And then the other person's turn will finally come, and they'll just talk about themselves. And nobody sits there saying, oh, what a great story. Tell me more. Like, we don't actually affirm what we've heard because we get so little practice actually communicating and listening in our own communities that we are constantly acting as if we're alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is important to talk about because it's not just affecting the fact that we're so unsustainable and we have gigantic footprints because our zoning laws force us to travel such vast distances between where we live and work because, you know, those functions are disintegrated. But it's worse than that. I mean, it's more intense than that. It's personal. It affects families. It affects our very individual selves. So tell me the story of how you first started to challenge these issues. And I, I, I associate you most with um, intersection repairs, actually. Uh, so was that the first thing you did? Was that the first challenge in, in, order, in order to maybe create some of the public squares that are missing here? Was that the intention? And could you tell the story of some of the first of those actions that you did? I want to say that, though that is kind of the first set of things we did. It's now gone into every department of, of the culture here in Portland. I mean, the, the principle of engendering place um, and creating gathering places in the fabric of where people are living and working is going into every, every, every department or compartment of our culture now. Um, the municipal governments at every scale are developing a sense of place. The Transportation Bureau is taking on placemaking everywhere across the city. Um, homeless, I mean, homeless villages are being legalized. There are, you know, because of the principle of participation and the idea that people should be able to work on their own behalf. So these were seminal projects that we did early in the intersection, um, but we were very systemic. I mean, our, our, our goal was systemic transformation. So we wanted, we wanted to create partnership cultures that would come out of this, we knew that we were creating a model for place-based communities, so every neighborhood across the city would be able to relate, but the transformation would require the consent and the participation of the bureaucracies um, you know, everywhere where this issue would affect them. So the opportunity was on both local and really not, not just uh, municipal levels, regional, but even global as the project has expanded. So to get the intersection going, and uh, also the other things that we've done at a very local level. All we've had to do, and this is such a lovely, lovely, um, elegant principle, 
is we compared the fabric of our neighborhood, which was largely placeless, to other kinds of villages and towns in the world where our own ancestors have come from to see that, you know, if, if we had our, our way, our say, we would have meeting houses, co-creative spaces, we would have all kinds of places to communicate and interact, and a much more interesting landscape with pathways, gateways, nodes of activity, village centers, and even things like public art or, or places of memory, you know, sacred places, sacred landscapes. So it was like, wow, we could start anywhere. Let's start with a, a community meeting house, which was a little sort of very, very sculptural tea house that we built, and the intersection project. And both of those were to say, okay, let's take a little, maybe a little Neolithic culture that definitely was more, more expressive of our, of our participatory nature, and just kind of inoculate the neighborhood with the presence of a couple of these archetypes and to see if people thrive. And in fact, it was an incredible thing but in order to do it, uh, we had to we had to kind of authorize ourselves to, to move ahead because, frankly, the codes and zoning regulations, um, <laughs> you know, d- defeated the, the whole idea. Mm-hmm. By beginning by saying you have no power where you live. Oh, you 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 working class people can do all the work to power the society, but you must be powerless. So we had to challenge that assumption, and we were coached by some a, a local native tribe who said, you've just got to do this. You've just got to do it and get in trouble. Mm. But never act as if anyone is your adversary. Because this situation is mm. so confused. Everyone is actually on the same side, and they don't even know it. Which is, you know, sounds like a bunch of, sort of Jedi philosophy, I think. But um, that's what we did. And we stood together, we got in trouble. The meeting house was built without a permit. The city came along and said, you can't do that. But the whole neighborhood had been involved in creating it, and they said, oh, yeah, well, what about the fact that we don't have anything here? And then they said, well, not only can you, you know, you, you, you can't do that, you can't do what you just did in the intersection either. And we said, well, sorry about that, but we do have all these goals and objectives to bring children outside, get them involved. I mean, we actually have a approved, approved benchmarks in every American neighborhood, virtually, to get kids involved in building community gathering places making streets safer, slowing cars, and all this whole raft of things that never get addressed, except through very, very expensive public infrastructure projects that barely work. So we said, we're meeting all these benchmarks. Why would you even think of trying to stop us when we're not costing any tax money and it's having all these obvious benefits? And within three months, everything we had done had been legalized as a prototype for everyone to do across the city for free, as many times as they wanted. In fact, 17,000 intersections are now available to Portland communities to transform into community gathering places for free. And something like 5,000 street miles are available for recreating as well. And all the permits are free for the work that we can do now. For people who might not be aware of them, what, what, what do they look like? What was that first intersection you do? What were the things that you, you did to that intersection? Well, the best gathering places in the world tend to exist right at the convergence of pathways. And in a, it's a, one of the most popular examples, of course, is the piazza. So you have these pathways coming into a space. And the best ones, the best versions of this, have edges that are animated, defined and animated by private activities, like a, a cafe or a bookshop or a clothes shop, a place for flowers, all those sorts of things that you might have to go to the mall to find in the USA you find right in the midst of your neighborhood 
and then it's your own neighbors that are employing your children. So what we, you know, and, and that sort of layering and layering of community. So what we did is we said, okay, well, we're just getting started. Let's treat this like a garden, like we're planting a seed, we're cultivating a start in our greenhouse, and we're going to put a little lettuce here. So instead of a full-on cafe, we built what we call the, the solar-powered 24-hour self-service tea station on one of the corners. And it's just this lovely, luminous umbrella that glows at night, and it serves hot tea, um, all sorts of different tea, and it's always free. So that's basically replicating one of the features, the most important features that you find at the edge of one of your favorite places, you know, that Americans travel by the millions to go see every year. So we're like, okay, this obviously will be an attractor. And in the first instance, um, on another corner, in the first intersection we did, um, we built what turns out to have been the first little free library, supposedly, articles say. Um, and I, I just love to mention that because there's like 30 or 40,000 of them now in the world. Mm-hmm. So that prototype has replicated just seemingly endlessly. But the intersection's replicating, and all the features on it are rep- replicating. So let's see, I'll describe the corners. Um, on one corner, there's the little library, and then this lovely sculptural bench uh, with a luminous, kind of a transparent roof, um, and then a fountain. On another corner, there's a large, what, they, what we call the interse- uh, information station, with all kinds of different notices and kind of little sort of place-based uh, communications about garage sales or, or birthdays. Um, there's also a uh, butterfly garden, um, an orchard, and then a newspaper dispenser for our local newspaper called the Bee, and it's a beehive-shaped dispenser. On another corner is a kid's clubhouse wrapped around a living tree, an art and poetry installation for people to just post things, and a memorial garden, and a chalk a chalk dispenser. And on another corner is the solar-powered tea station, um, a community pavilion for people to gather under with benches, and then um, a kind of a community garden. So all those features together give you layers and layers of interesting, um, attractive activities that bring you to the space. And then the street surface itself is a gigantic mural that reaches out and locks together all the four corners. So instead of the street being just a void, it um, becomes a unified sense of place. So it's really regenerating um, human patterns of, of, of settlement or placemaking um, that usually is the foundation of the community, usually the beginning point of community, but it, it's a retroactive um, development. And how did you get the ball rolling on this? Because you must have had to build a kind of consensus in the neighborhood, right? And were yeah. there any objections? Sure. Uh, there were some condominium owners about eight blocks away who were used to driving through the neighborhood very quickly. And um, they, they, mm. it, was, it was pretty offensive, actually, the way that they would almost hit children. And part of mm. what motivated us were a couple of little girls did get run over by a car about four blocks from there mm. as they were trying to get to a playground. So what part of what motivated us was that um, we had a dialogue in a local restaurant about the fact that there were 500 houses kind of landlocked by busy streets and there was nowhere for kids to play, much less a social commons for adults to just go and see each other, even like a garden or a park. So people started to talk about this, and during the meeting, our really quite quite famous and beloved um, neighborhood historian came to the meeting, and people sort of besieged her with questions like, how could this happen? Why, why would we live in such a place? And she said, 
she explained that we all live in a development, and she said we studied this issue in high school. It was called Westward Expansion and Manifest Destiny. It was very upsetting for people to hear, but she's like, you really want an answer? We're housed as a working class. We're not supposed to be building culture. We're out here to cut down trees and mine resources and send the mm-hmm. proceeds to the people on the East Coast that designed this whole approach to land development. <laughs> people were very upset. But, you know, I mean, this is, this is something that has to be talked about in every every isolated community from Los Angeles to Baltimore. It no, works the same way. Now, does it? You're actually going to come to Los Angeles, and it seems, you know, we're, we're here in Los Angeles, of course, it seems like a very different city than Portland in many ways. And I'm wondering, well, what you're going to do here when you come here, and then uh, do you think of it differently, and what sort of different approaches might you take to this place? Yeah. Well, Los Angeles is different in a lot of ways. I mean, Portland Portland has the advantage of uh, having the smallest blocks per capita per per, yeah, per capita of mm-hmm. all cities. So it yeah. means that we tend to have more intersecting points, which means that people just will inherently interact more than in a landscape like Los Angeles or Salt Lake City, especially where the blocks are so gigantic. And incidentally, mm-hmm. when you see gigantic blocks, it's because the developer decided that they wanted to minimize the money that they would put into non-saleable real estate, Mm -hmm. like infrastructure, Mm -hmm. and maximize what they could sell. So they were after even more money. And in Portland, for some reason, the developers there um, were more attracted to to a smaller scale with with more infrastructure and actually more corners. I think that was part of it. We would end up with more corners, which which sell or lease for more money, typically. Mm -hmm. So... Not exactly civic goals entirely. But yeah, LA's different. But it also has embedded in it a Spanish colonial city, as you know. The mm-hmm. great public square downtown that still functions at a wonderful human scale actually tells the the story of the difference between Spanish colonialism and American. Like right in right there in the heart of LA is the very beginning point of how um Spanish colonialism be- would begin with with a central open space plaza. Mm-hmm. And then along comes um, the American version, which is really just, I mean, in the case of L.A., what was it, three days? It took three days for a military lieutenant to basically do the essential surveying that laid out um, the majority of Los Angeles, you know, to basically parcel it off for the settlers to come. But not just for the settlers to come, for him and the other people that were rewarded for their, for their activities by being um, the property-based ruling class that would would establish the new new story of Los Angeles. I mean, that's how it works. The military goes out, quells the native people, and then surveys off the land, and then their reward is to own the land and extend um, the American empire westward. That was the story at the time. So Los Angeles is a very intense case. Bigger blocks, very aggressive, placeless, exploitive attitude, you know, and that that's all bad-sounding stuff, but the truth is, Los Angeles also rocks with one of the most creative cultures in the world, I mean, because it's attracted um, a very diverse and creative set of people, um, where a lot of cultural fusion happens, because people are wonderful by nature. And even as we speak, in spite of poverty, in a lot of cases, people are retrofitting that landscape to make it amazing, you know? that's the That's the more modern history of Los Angeles. And it has a Latino majority that I think understands the uh, cultural importance of uh, public spaces, yeah. too. So, yeah, they bring that with them. 
Right. So what what exactly are you going to do here when you when you come here? I think which I think is next weekend, right? Yeah. Well, I can't go anywhere to tell people how to be like Portland. That just that doesn't work, <laughs> and I wouldn't want to. Right. But at the same time, people are coming from all over the world to Portland to, to find out, you know, how things how things work. So, just a little side note: I gave a tour not long ago to the mayor of Toyota City, Japan. Wow. It's an extreme example of a developer's dream. Um, you know, absolutely modernist. Looks like you just stepped out of Star Trek, except. Um, the public health issues are intense. I mean, people kill each other, um, you know, hurt each other in these in these measurable ways. They're so unlike um, Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. So they're wondering, you know, why would this be happening? Um, and they came to Portland because they know that we somehow engage communities more than other cities. And all these things are happening in the city as a result of it that are positive. So we're taking them on a tour of all these features in Portland. And it just, it, it just was silly. It was kind of laughable. I mean, they're like, okay, so how do you get people together? And I said, okay, so it's called a potluck. <laughs> and they're, you know, the, the mayor's assistants are sitting there scribbling furiously. <laughs> you know, and you have to outreach to the local community. You know, you might have to knock on doors, put out flyers. Of course, there's email lists these days, and they're taking all this down. And uh, you have to be inclusive and celebrate differences you know, diversity, and actually, this is a bit of a stretch in many ways for um for aspects of Japanese culture, which I've just visited very recently, doing workshops and presentations. So, I mean, even though you don't want people to be like Portland, everybody's interested in Portland because we're accomplishing all of these goals, like everybody's driving measurably less every year. Mm-hmm. Um, our our multimodal transportation system is expanding and. Portlanders are measurably healthier every year with all sorts of ways of proving that there's this efficacy for all these projects. Um, but then when I come to Los Angeles, how in the world do we help? Well, mm. Right. <laughs> how <laughs> will you help? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's not really that hard because we're talking about patterns of participation, ways that people facilitate each other. I, I mean, the great thing, the great challenge of course, for Los Angeles, like the rest of the country, is how do you kind of get out of um, this mindset that you're always looking out only for your own interests and instead start caring and listening better to other people so that you let them help you with your interests as you help them. And, of course, what we're trying to gel is a, a, a strong community of independent, resilient individuals, but that add up to a greater whole you know, so that you really have a larger sense of identity and not talking about anybody's, you know, kind of stereotypical notion of, like, socialism or something. We're talking about place-based behavior and community, you know, where people are, you know, saying, oh, my gosh, we all do live in this community, don't we? Maybe maybe we could slow traffic if we work together because it's clearly not working if we don't. And if all of our children are going unmentored and feeding them Prozac doesn't seem to be helping. Um, all these technological distractions and drugs that they're falling into, are that all of that's increasing as we are measurably increasingly out of touch with our kids year by year. So how do we somehow address this? We obviously have to do it together as a community. And the politicians aren't going to figure this out because they're overwhelmed or they're corrupt. 
and they don't have enough money anyway. So maybe it's a human capital approach, based approach. Maybe it's a localization initiative, where people actually go from saying, oh, we have no power where we live, to having power where we live. So all that stuff, that's not Portland, that's just, that's just humanity. I mean, that's how every village in the world has risen. Nobody ever started off by saying, oh, let's be powerless and uh, give our authority away to bureaucrats who we've never even met. So, you know, we can take the lessons from Portland, and a lot of them are just directly transferable. You know, how do we facilitate each other's voice? That works the same in Portland as it does in Los Angeles. In fact, better. You guys are actually so much more acquainted with each other in terms of, um, like, the racial divides that exist more strongly in the Pacific Northwest. I, I moved to tears in, in Los Angeles watching how people respectfully interact with each other. And I'm not pretending you're perfect. I don't want to romanticize right, anything. Right. But the communities down there are so much closer to being able to work together in a lot of circumstances than, than, than in the Northwest. Hmm. So, and I think that's a source of strength. People think, oh, that's such a huge challenge. I think it's a huge opportunity. Yeah, I agree. I want to, a little self-serving, talk a little more about how to kind of get the ball rolling on these sorts of projects, because um, it seems like it's a leadership question, too. Like, how do you how do you lead a group, or how do you not lead a group? I don't know how to put it. Uh, we, a neighbor uh, here and I and Kelly, we, we had all these kind of ambitious ideas for a kind of uh, intersection repair project here. And our neighbor, who's a caterer, put together a really nice um, potluck kind of thing, which in a way was enough. I mean, that was wonderful just to get to know the neighbors. And the, the uh, benefits from that have lasted. Yeah, they've really, it has lasted a lot. And yet, though, we kind of would still want to do something more, really but it didn't happen. quite. Yeah. So how do you <laughs> move it further than that potluck? I mean, what kind of leadership tools and, and thoughts do you have about how to how to kind of get the ball rolling. Sure. Well, there's a, a lot of ways. And the thing is, every every community really ends up being um, its own story. I mean, we could say that we have a template, um, but I think we've done like 450 projects in Portland, and I don't think that our template, uh, we, we've never actually manifest that perfect template. It's always a little bit different. So... You know, you might say, well, get everyone together. Get as many people together and kind of form an idea that you want to do. To do. Um, but that's not really practical. Uh, to get people together, even if you've got everyone up and down a block to come to a meeting, you just can't say to them, okay, everyone, yeah. none of us know each other. How do we, how do we start doing things? <laughs> right, right. You know, there's no relationships of trust. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows anybody's skills. You know, you could, have, mm-hmm. you could all be famous chefs but you wouldn't even know it. So mm-hmm. how in the world to get started? The truth is that it's usually, it's usually an individual person or a collection of people that have some, somehow started to make friendships or maybe they organize block parties sometimes. It's people who uh, have a strong affinity for other people just innately um, that tend to step forward. And... You know, at best, they're not people that just sort of decide for everyone else what needs to happen, but that they're they're the kind of person who's more interested in facilitating. So maybe they convene. Um, you know, for, for myself getting things started, I wanted to facilitate and convene, but I also couldn't wait. So I just started to create things. So 
I tore up um, a grass strip. We had some pretty wide ones in this neighborhood of about eight feet. And I just planted gardens all around the perimeter of the house that I was renting. Mm-hmm. And then I mm-hmm. built, um, I mean, it was almost compulsive. I just, I, I grabbed some sticks off of a, a, a tree that I had just pruned, and I put them in the ground around the perimeter of the yard. It was about 150 lineal feet on a corner. And then I just attached vases to the um, to these upright pruned branches um, in a very crude and childlike way. Not in an ugly way, but it looked as if children had done it. And then I filled those vases with water and flowers. So they were, mm. And then yeah. I put little signs on them saying, uh, just, just take a flower, um, you know, something like that. So I created an outward gesture along the edge of the, um, of the place where I, I was renting. And so you just started. That was, yeah, I just started. You just started. And I started in a way that was delightful. I was like, okay, I am armed with beauty and generosity, and um, I kind of understand that people are afraid, so I'll do something non-threatening. You know, it's entirely optional, but I want to enchant them. I want them to be delighted, and I didn't explain what I was doing. I wanted people to have a reason to talk with other people, like to say to a neighbor, you see what's happening down there on the corner? Um, I just got this flower from there. Do you know those guys? Like, hopefully they would be saying things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I started to put in some very sculptural installations using all the branches and blossoms um, of, the, of that springtime in 1996 um, and started to just create lovely things on the corners, um, very improvisationally. And I know this sounds like a bunch of kind of crazy behavior, but I had just come from seven years of traveling to visit all these different villages. And I, I actually was going from place to place just asking, you know, do you have any, any idea what is what is wrong with me and my and my people, what's mm. happened to us? Mm. And when I came back from all those circumstances, I just felt free. Like, wow, like indigenous people around the world just get up in the morning and get their children involved in whatever is happening. I will just spontaneously and freely create and see see how that feels. And as soon as I started, I was like, my God, this is how I used to be as a child, making tree houses and running through the landscape with my friends with a much more liberated imagination. So it, it began to be personally transformative for me. But it immediately was working. I mean, people were coming by, they were talking to each other, they were wanting to ask me what was going on. And then I started the construction of this of this tea house that was really like a fusion of a of a Mayan rainforest meeting house, which was my favorite community to visit, and then an Oxford tea ritual, afternoon tea ritual, which is another place that I spent a long time on these travels, and I just mm. kind of fused this contemporary but ancient Western European informal social ritual with this profound um, architecture of nature that I had experienced in the rainforest of um, deep southern Mexico and in Chiapas. And was that... Fused those together. Uh, I'm sorry, sorry. Was that tea house on the land that you were renting at the time? where you were doing those initial interventions? That's one question I had is when you're working the intersection, um, are people volunteering their front yards and their corners, the private land to build the structures on? Yeah. That's the thing about, um, you know, in a lot, I mean, I, I found that in most communities, people don't understand the regulations. They're just kind of behaving according to what appears to be normal. So they don't really think about the fact that on the other side of the sidewalk in that grass strip or boulevard, as some people refer to it, um, 
that you can't do anything. They never think, <laughs> I can't do anything there. Mm. And it doesn't occur to them to build a bench or anything else because nobody else is doing it. Why would you? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all sort of trained to <laughs> be threatened by each other. So why would you want to give anyone a place to sit? Well, those car doors have so, to be able to swing open. That's what those are sp- spots are for, right? <laughs> to allow right. allow the car door to swing open. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, there's so there's uh, layers and layers of different different reasons there. But um, oh shoot, I'm losing track of what you what you. No, oh, I was okay. just asking about like the, the, the so that just that the the structures, the, the tea houses, the um, all of that's built on people's land that they're sort of giving to oh, the yeah. commons, right? Like saying you can have yeah. this corner, right? Yeah. So the reason I was bringing up the fact that people don't know about the rules is that once everyone starts to work together. Um, say that they talk about painting the streets, um, and then they start talking about some features, interactive features on the corners, they don't really tend to see a difference between the right-of-way space of the boulevard and the street surface and their own yard. Mm. So, for instance, my neighborhood, the first intersection, um, gosh, on one corner you have two features in the right-of-way, and then you have this gigantic uh, information exchange station on the corner of the private yard. Um, on the other corner, you have this glorious gateway that leads you into the person's house, but it's covered with passion flowers. So it's an amenity that speaks to the street, but it, it's also the, the entrance to the private space. So it, it's a private feature that contributes to the public space. Mm-hmm. And then there are guards that, native gardens on both the private and public side, as well as interactive features. All the corners are pretty much like that. I mean, another one is a simple feature, like a, it's like a public... On this other corner, there's the tea station, the butterfly garden, small edibles, and then this glorious public fig tree. And that's sitting on the private corner, but it's offered for everyone who's walking by. And the other, the fourth corner is kind of similar like that. Everybody starts to aggregate their edges and contribute to the thing that they feel part of. This is a revelation for Americans to realize, gosh, if I just contribute a little bit to everyone else, I get to have more myself, too, because mm. they're doing it as well. But then what happens when, I mean, you alluded to it before, that inevitably the city comes around and says you can't do that here. Um, how, how, do you, how do you engage with the city at that point? What's, what does that dialogue uh, look like? Well, let's see. It does happen that the city will say that. Uh, there's a few cities we're working with right now where there's even some uh, rather intransigent transportation officials saying no while the mayor is saying freaking yes. <laughs> you, you will freaking do this. I am the mayor. Mm-hmm. So even when you have a culture of, of political support, you will still have some amount of bureaucratic resistance because they're, you know, they have these directives that are very limited. In the case of transportation, they haven't connected community development objectives to public space issues that relate to the streets. That's just evolution right there. I mean, it's the, it's making the connection, and usually the political advocates or leadership have to help the bureaucracy by redefining their their um, job description or their mission, and then and then at that point, um, the transportation officials are very happy to undertake a new mission, but they're not comfortable shifting from the old mission to to the new mission until they have a culture of um, of, of of more creative initiative. Our transportation bureau certainly does. I mean, they're completely out of the box, and they're not only helping other cities do it, do these things, you know, sharing our technical tools and um, coaching them along, 
or even presenting about these things in other countries, you know, they, they've gone well beyond um, just being engineering-oriented, and now they're really, they're really, uh, I think, a culture of communitarians, and they're saying, well, gosh, this isn't just our job. We're actually potentially leaders. The personal benefits for my favorite transportation official is Greg Raisman in our Portland Department of Transportation, and he gets many personal benefits as he goes from community to community helping people do this kind of work. So I guess my answer is every culture is going to start off saying, you know, we don't understand what you're talking about. We've never seen this before. And it's the community's job to keep kind of providing more information, giving presentations, making proposals to help the bureaucracy to become acquainted with these issues. But there's just layers of beautiful things happening here. I mean, first of all, what's deficient is the community has not been making proposals and undertaking creative initiatives on their own. Most of the way that you know change happens in the society, in the form, especially in the form of gentrification, is that it's developers funded by banks who might even have the worst ideas that make the drive the process of change. But it's exactly the same kind of idea for local communities. It's just that we it's we don't have a culture that thinks this way. Oh gosh, we could have an idea through our human capital and combined resources we could actually get together and make a proposal on our own behalf and, and drive change from within, which incidentally really strongly counteracts gentrification once, once the culture gets moving. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the same set of tools. You just take a little out of the context and reacquaint us with a basic democratic principle, um, and it can work every time. But the bureaucracy will grow. The political leadership will grow. I mean, it's really like a, it's like a succession you know, like where a forest is recovering from a clear cut. Everybody can grow through this and start to help other people with it. And every community will start off being unfamiliar, but they still have the same goals. They just don't have the tools yet to meet those challenges. Well, Mark, unfortunately, we're almost out of time here, and I wanted to leave a little bit of time for you to talk about uh, your upcoming tour. This podcast will be coming out on Monday, uh, March 14th of 2016, and this coming week you are going on a tour, so you want to say something about um, where you'll be and what what you'll be up to and how people can uh, meet you, hopefully. Yeah, I don't have all of the dates. Do you have the contact information for the... um the website. I do. I'll put, it, uh, I'll put it on the show notes for this uh, podcast so people can see that. Okay, great. All right. Well, I can just generally say that we're going to be starting in Davis, California, and working around in the Bay Area several days in Oakland. We'll be over in Bolinas for a couple of events. Um, we'll be in San Jose and Santa Cruz, uh, both going down California and coming back. We'll be doing things in that area. Uh, we'll be swinging down through um, San Luis Obispo for a short time um, to kind of recharge, and then we'll head down into, uh, let's see, through Ojai, uh, Santa Barbara, Ojai, and then uh, Los Angeles, I think for about 10 days, and a little bit of time in San Diego. And this particular tour is much more of an action tour. We're not just giving presentations. We're giving a lot of more in-depth workshops to kind of in a dialogue, participatory-based format, point people with skills and tools and practices and how they can help each other, you know, to, to work together. So it's facilitative design, participatory design, how to do publicity and, and outreach, how to fundraise, but also how to do projects with almost no money, just simply by knocking on doors and getting people involved. 
because frankly, you know, we're, we're not actually trying to work with money or find money because we want to have a kind of approach that anyone can do anywhere where they are with whatever they have. So, you know, for low-income community, you know, how do you, how do you get started? And the truth is most people have all this stuff accumulated in their basements and garages and closets and attics. So how do you, how do you get that stuff liberated out into some sort of use with other people who have also accumulated a lot of stuff? That's how a lot of these projects happen. It's just taking your accumulated resource and then figuring out a way to join it with other people to make things happen. So that's a lot of what we'll be talking about, too. Excellent. Well, I, w- I really want to thank you, Mark, for yes. spending so much time with us. Thank you so much. And thank we will be sure to put that information up yes. for interested listeners. Um, and I hope some people can come out and see you. All right. Thank you, Mark. Good luck on the, on the trip. Thank you to you both. Have a great day. Okay, you too. That was Mark Lakeman. His website is marklakeman.net, where you can find out more about his West Coast tour. If you're listening to this podcast in March of 2016 and want to participate in the events Mark Lakeman will be at in Los Angeles, visit change-making.com. That's change-making.com. There's a bunch of talks and workshops running from the 22nd to the 28th of March. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple Podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website, which is rootsimple.com. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 